You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 30. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. Visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find show notes, examples, discussion, and more. Send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. Follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or Facebook at facebook.com slash codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and you can find all our social links there at the top of the page. And with that, welcome to Coding Blocks. I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zach. And I'm Michael Outlaw. All right, and so uh, first let's start off with a little bit of news. We'll try to keep it short. We've gotten some feedback about that. Uh, So, Alan, you want to uh, talk to us about algorithms? Yeah, apparently I can't. Wait, what? (laughs) What what do you mean you can't? No, you're taking a whole class for this. Look, man, so I, I did the first week, week and a half of videos, like all in one night, and and. I got wrapped up in Meteor and React.js and literally just did not get back to the algorithm thing. So maybe at some point I'll get back to it, but apparently I'm going to fail this class. So, well, uh, so. I quit intentionally. <laughs> uh, after <laughs> telling the internet that I was going to do it, uh, I watched the first couple videos and uh, decided that uh, I didn't want to do it. Oh, it was all theory and, and math. and. But you didn't even get through the first week. Who, yeah, me? I didn't. Oh, yeah, no, Joe quit it, because it wasn't code-centric. It was literally more uh, what? f what? of yeah. g of x up to n equal to f over n equal it, times it was math. g of x. Yeah. It was straight-up math. There was, And he even said he did not want to do any implementation code-wise. He wanted abstract thought and, you know, being able to to put these these ideas – into pseudocode that could be translated into any language. So it it was not coding. Yeah, man, it's uh, not fun. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to keep up with it. And, you know, fortunately, our, our buddy, uh, I am Will Mattis, or I am, I can't, Will, he's doing it. Like, he's following through like a champ. Oh, really? So, yeah, so hopefully he'll give us some feedback here at the he end of it. He is a champ, man. He is. He is. Yeah, he sticks with it. But like All I said, right. I, I, well, I I found a shiny new toy and I and I got sidetracked. Yeah, man, you saw a squirrel and you went for it. I did. You're like a dog. <laughs> uh, all right. So so what you got, outlaw? Are you gonna make it through this recording or like midway through it, you're gonna see something? <laughs> oh, I can't I can't guarantee you anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you know, you guys you guys left me in Atlanta all by myself. So you know, I, I've uh, I've actually like wandered out around you know. And, and gone to a couple meetups. So there have been some really good meetups here in the Atlanta area, uh, both on React.js, um, or at least those are the ones that I've gone to. And uh, one of them was a first, uh, the premier meetup for re- specific to React.js, and then another one was just uh, the JavaScript meetup where the topic was React.js. And they were both really good. You know, The first one, the premier uh React.js meetup, it was focusing on unit testing your React.js, and uh, the other one was just more of an introduction to React.js in general, but it was both good information, and, and the testing one, um, we'll have the, I'll, I'll include a link to that in the show notes, but there was some um, interesting verbiage around unit testing that I was actually kind of curious to see, like, if, uh, you know, what you guys had had uh, if you'd heard of it or what you thought of it, like there was unit versus functional testing, which is okay. That that's not so new, but white box versus black box testing. Never heard of it. Yeah, white box is like when you have the source code, right? 
Um, no. No? No. Well, at least not the way that, that it was defined uh, within within the confines of that meetup. They were defining that, um, you know, think of black box testing as synonymous with functional testing, whereas white, blo- white box testing was um, testing more the internal structures of your entire system under test. Uh, okay, so like white box has knowledge of the internal workings and the black box is as if uh, you were a third party almost. Um, yeah, I guess that'd be a good way to put it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've never it, heard those terms for it. Yeah, I hadn't heard of it described that way either. But um, yeah, it was really good. Like I said, I'll include I'll include a a link to the to the slide presentation um, in the show notes. It was some good stuff. Cool. So, oh, and there's another one that's coming up that you know, ought to be really like I'm. You should be excited about this one, Alan, because uh, coming up at the 29th of this month, there's another JavaScript one on Meteor specific to gaming. Yeah, I saw that in the show notes. I'm kind of curious about it because it doesn't seem to really fit the pattern that Meteor is. But, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to – I don't think I'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what happens when you leave me in Atlanta. Like, i got to go find things. Yeah, I understand. You know, you, got, you guys are both down in Florida now, so. So – that's uh that's kind of interesting though because like like I said what what kind of pulled me away from the algorithm class was I've been messing around with Meteor JS and React and really the kind of what did it is I don't I don't even remember what I was searching for one night but I came across this article that this guy wrote about hey why you should choose, why you should use Meteor for your next project and I ended up watching it, like I read all his bullet points and I was like wow that's kind of cool and he's like watch this video if you don't believe it. And I watched this video. It might have been seven minutes. But, dude, like, what they did in that seven minutes blew my mind. It Just coming from having done so many apps over over the years, I was like, wow, this is, this is really impressive. And so I kind of dove into it. And the interesting part is I ended up doing it with React. I have no idea why. I think maybe I saw another blog post. And I was like, you know what? If I'm going to play with one, I'll play with them both. And... And I've actually had a lot of fun with it. Like, I've literally been staying up every night past midnight messing around with Meteor.js and and React.js. And I've got thoughts on it. I don't know if we want to go into them now. Maybe we'll do it on the next episode or something. But it's uh, there's some really cool stuff to, to be had there. Yeah, I was definitely thinking about maybe in a future episode we talk more about it. Because, like, specific to React.js, right, like one of the, you know, big to-dos about it is the virtual DOM, right? And it's kind of like, well, why should I care about the virtual DOM? Like, why is that a thing, right? Right. But, um, so I think maybe we could cover that in a future one. Yeah. You know, we'll, there's we'll, a lot of good stuff there. Yeah, we'll do it. it. I mean, I've actually had a lot of time to play around with both of them. And, and was could, this video that blew your mind away? Was this like a Michael Bay production or something? No, you know, it no. It could have just been no, a lot of CGI. No, nothing, nothing cool, right? It was, it was literally just, hey, let me show you what Meteor can do. And, and just walk through quickly building an application that literally had, like all the core pieces that you would need, it, it was it was pretty impressive. But yeah, along, until I see it with my own eyes, it's CGI. <laughs> along those same lines, though, one other thing I wanted to mention was with that, you know, anytime you start making an app, you you kind of want to start off with something that can bootstrap you, right? And that's why uh, Bootstrap is so popular. And and there's another one out there called Va- Foundation. Well, I've always kind of rooted for the underdog. Like I've always wanted to, you know, say. Oh, okay. Well, half the planet's using Bootstrap. Let me let me try Foundation, right? 
man, I got in there messing with it and it's got some nice things, but I was so disappointed at some of the things that were missing that I ended up scrapping foundation and going back to bootstrap. So I don't know, a little frustrating. And if you haven't played with either of those things, we'll have links in the, uh, in the show notes for them. But, um, at any rate, just, just some cursory thoughts on that. I mean, I always go with the winner. That's why I program in C sharp. <laughs> wait, w- wait, wouldn't you be in Java? Isn't that what like 90% of the world's using? I got no time for losers. <laughs> Second place is the first loser. Uh, yeah, no fear. <laughs> Sorry, Java. Just kidding. Wow. Not. All right. Anyway, uh, reviews. So we got a couple of reviews. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm going to butcher your name probably. Uh, first is from a Swinner, uh, who said this is the only podcast uh, they listen to, uh, which is, is cool. But there's some other good ones that we can suggest. Uh, no, also, no, but that's perfectly fine. We'll take that. That's, yeah, that's incredible. Like, awesome. we're the Thank only you. one he listens to. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, also, we got one from Fleckism, uh, which is awesome. So thank you very much. And oh, also uh, on Twitter, uh, I believe it was uh, Luke Warren mentioned he got his whole team of coworkers listening to the podcast, which is fantastic. So, what up, team? Yeah, thank you very much. That's awesome. Welcome, welcome to our our podcast. Yeah, somebody give that guy a medal. Yeah, no doubt. High hey, five. I, now I told him if he to take it to the next level, he needs to get all those guys to leave us reviews. That would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, that would also. Be awesome. Yeah, we sent out we sent out a thing on Twitter just kind of saying, "Hey, this is we're we're about to do a podcast on design patterns another and, you know, hey, what what do you guys want to hear about?" And Adam actually wrote us and said that he'd like to know about like parsing APIs using XML or JSON, why choose them, that kind of thing. So, we'll add that to the stack of things that we want to talk about. And then Andre um asked about ALM, which is alerting, logging, and monitoring and that's something that we've all had quite a bit of experience with, and that could definitely span an episode or two. So we'll we'll get that in the queue because I think that's something that everybody should know a little bit about. So, and uh, since we're on the topic of JavaScript frameworks, or you know, ha- have been talking about them so far, uh, could one of you guys do me a favor and remind me to register for Connect JS? Yeah, I was going to ask you to remind me. <laughs> But sure. that's coming up. So if you're in the Atlanta area or you want an excuse to travel to the Atlanta area, uh, ooh, October ooh, 16th through the 17th, uh, hint, hint, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's some there's some pretty good stuff. I mean, if you if you go and look at that conference, you can find it at connect-js.com. Yeah, and there's, there's some uh, big names in that. It sounds like it's going to be a very interesting conference. So, um, yeah, check it out. And then... You know, so we started doing these surveys, and uh, you know we've gotten some interesting results. And in our last episode, you know, just as soon as we start it and we get this good path going, we forget to mention a, a survey, and so like I had to make one up. So since we didn't remember to mention it in the episode, I thought, well, obviously the survey for this one is should this episode have a survey? <laughs> <laughs> now. <laughs> I'm assuming that you two haven't cheated. I haven't. And you haven't looked at it. I've not looked. Not All looked. right. So, what do you? <laughs> your choices are yes or no. Seventy-five percent no. Seventy-five percent no. Seventy-five percent yes. Okay. Well, Joe would be the winner then. Really? Ooh. People like it surveys. Was, 
it was 20 it was a uh, 72% for yes wow all right so, then well i guess if you rounded that it would be closer to 73% but whatever well, if the price is right he would have won showcase yeah, showdown yeah. come on people i'm just amazed well, no. that more than four no, people no, voted he went over he went he went over there right no but that's the thing you always had to no you had to go under i'm about yeah my bad i was wrong yeah you, you had to stay under he lost but uh yeah so i thought that was interesting so i guess the you know the audience likes surveys because even the episode that we forgot to have a survey should have had a survey that, which is cool. coincidentally it did have a survey so it's a good thing <laughs> that i put a survey on it <laughs> since everyone seemed to think that it should have one that's like uh 12 monkeys or pandora's box or something well this is good this is for science so <laughs> i feel like we've we've done the scientific community well by including that survey we have we have stats now <laughs> so uh <laughs> you know in other news and i i debated on whether or not this one should be a survey but i decided not to uh you know there github has their atom editor i don't know if either of you have used it and then microsoft forked that and uh used it as the base basis for the visual studio code uh product that was discussed I don't know how long ago, a couple months back. And um, so I've been playing with both and like kind of comparing and contrast, like, you know, just trying to get acclimated to both. And uh, I wasn't sure, like, you know, have you guys used either? What's your thoughts on one versus the other? Or do you have any opinions on it? Haven't touched them. I've wanted to get into both of them, but I don't know. I guess uh, I'm so used to Visual Studio and Sublime that those pretty much went out. Yeah, I'm still uh, really figuring out Sublime. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which is sad. So, so here's the thing. Then, so like for anyone who's listening in that is a um, you know a fan of either, I, I'd love to th- hear some of your um, you know, your take on either or both of them. Because if you use both, like for example, um, there's some little nuances between them, right? Like uh, Visual Studio Code has a revert file option. But that option is dangerously close to the save all. So every time you click on save all, you almost feel like you want to say, that was close. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> I almost didn't make it, right? <laughs> but so, so Adam doesn't have that feature, uh, which is good. But then there's other like little nuances too. Like um, Adam has tabbed... So, like, every time you open a file, you get a new tab for it, which is really cool, right? And especially if you're already coming from something like a Visual Studio or an IntelliJ. Or Sublime. Yeah. Like, like you're used to this, right? And I don't know why, but they took it out in code. It doesn't do that. So, you only have have one file? No. You can have... Okay. So, you can split screen your, your environment like you can in, like, a Visual Studio, for example, right? Like... You, you can have, uh, you know, to split screen it and see multiples. But it's so annoying because in each one of those panes, you can only have one file. So as soon as you click on another file, well, you just blew open, away. You know, you, ju- you just took away whatever one you were looking at. So you can't have and more the, than two files at a time. Yeah. So, if well, no, you can. You can keep, you can keep splitting 
them off just like you can in in like a visual studio or an intellij but right? they're open they're truly open at that point right like you're seeing them all at the same time as opposed to hey this is my list of files open and let me switch between them well yeah so like if you're like me like i'll often have multiple files open that i'm working in and i'll know that like hey you know one maybe one piece of something that i, I need is going to be in this file and another part's going to be in another file and like and i might not be actively looking at that it might not be one of the tabs that are actively open at the time but i can i know that it's there and i could easily go back to it right whereas now working in in code you don't have that option but what you do get is this other like little workspace scenario where like if you double click the file then it comes up into your workspace area so that you can have a quick access to it um, from there. Because um, I should mention too that uh, if, like, when you navigate files, it's automatically moving the equivalent of the Solution Explorer. I like right? that. It's automatically navigating to that next file. You say that, but it can be annoying if you only have like a couple files open, and all of a sudden you're like, "Well, where's that other file that I really needed?" Oh, I forgot to double click it, so it gets in the workspace. I'm going so to have to download and install it. Yeah, I need and, to and install like, it. One one last one though is that on the Atom side of the house, it is inundated with choices in the menus. Right, hmm. like if you start poking around in the menu systems, there's just all kinds of options there. Right. Whereas in Visual Studio Code, they've pared that down. And I actually kind of liked that better. I thought that that was a better experience than like, hey, here's everything under the sun. So they chose so, the Eclipse route in Atom. Um, I don't know that I would quite word it that way. But, I, I mean, like, there's definitely, you know, if you start poking around the menus, you, you definitely get lost in the options quick. You you know, you can, right? And and Code is is cleaner in that respect so like i said i'd love to hear some feedback from like uh, what others are doing uh with either or both editors you know if you have a, a pro and con you know why you chose one over the other I'd, I'd love to hear some feedback on that yeah and you'll be able to do that if you're in a podcast player like you're listening to your car or something just you know swipe over to the show notes thing and at the very top we're going to have a link to this episode so it'll be codingblocks.net slash episode 30 but you'll be able to click that and go up there and leave us a comment fairly quickly. So um, with that, we did decide that we were going to do a survey this episode, a real one. And uh, based off a LinkedIn question that I saw that I thought was pretty interesting, uh, there, there seemed to be a lot of, uh, of comments on this one question about whether you should spend your time learning frameworks or learning the underlying languages. So, for instance, would you... Would you learn React.js or would you take the time learning just the core JavaScript language? Or would you take time learning Angular versus the JavaScript language or whatever, right? So it's uh, it's yeah, kind like of... this survey isn't a survey. Like this is a no-brainer. You got to learn the, the underlying technology. I See, I disagree. I, I've, known plenty, I've known plenty of people that have picked up frameworks and been able to look at existing code in the framework because the framework is coded in a way that is usually better practices than somebody just coming off street and writing some code, right? Because there's a lot of people collaborating on it. So you kind of get to pick up good practices that way. And I've actually known people that have picked up frameworks and, and been able to be productive and not be inundated with all the little nuances of the language. And they pick those up over time. 
As yeah, they I've run... also known people, though, that get in that situation, and then all they know is the framework, and they don't know anything outside of it. And that's the argument, right? So the, the actual LinkedIn question was, hey, uh, my team is working with Angular, but they're about to switch to React, and I'm nervous because, you know, I don't even know Angular that well. You know, should I move over to this? And then, uh, of course, you know, as is the case with everything on the Internet, people don't actually answer the, the immediate question. They, you know, go off, hey, you don't need to learn just that. You need to learn JavaScript, you need to learn CSS, you need to learn HTML. That's pretty overwhelming, right, all in itself. So it, it, it was kind of curious. So, you know, I'm wondering where, where people stand on that. Do you get extremely proficient at the underlying language before you go jump into any frameworks, or do you use the frameworks to help you learn as you go? I don't know. But I do agree because frameworks get eclipsed, right? Like they, they have a sunset on them. You know, I mean, framework Angu- isn't going to tell you to use triple equal. But you'll see it a lot yeah, in you'll the code. You'll see that in the examples. Yeah, but yeah, you that's won't understand it. Uh, I, I disagree, man. Like, that's one of those things. When you're reading through any kind of new language that you pick up, I mean, you, I, I don't know. A lot of times using somebody else's code as a guide is a lot of the way to learn something, right? So well, I, guess, I guess we'll see what everybody responds back with and. uh What's your take, Joe? Then we'll have the science. What's your take, Joe? Of course, the answer is both, but I'm strangely on the side of learning the framework, actually. uh, Yeah, I I feel the same way. Like, uh, you know, you got to get stuff done. And I feel like learning through the lens of framework uh, can be a good way to kind of dip your toe into the underlying technology while still getting stuff done. And as you, you know, keep seeing patterns or, you know, things like triple equal signs, eventually you're going to, you know, get curious and Google them. So I feel like you'll learn the underlying soon enough. Okay, so so let me put it to you like this, okay? <laughs> you're not gonna you're not gonna convince me. <laughs> yeah. So so th- and this one's specifically for Alan, but you know what, Joe, you're more than welcome to sign up for this too, because Coursera has a new class on React JS, or there's one on JavaScript. Now, which one you're gonna pick? React, React JS. Oh man. You would do you would do core JavaScript? Are you kidding me? Well, I mean, like if you hadn't already done it, I was trying to make a joke. I don't know if Coursera actually has those classes. No, I'm no, sure but I mean, no, but I mean, they probably I mean, do. But seriously, throw will. that, throw that away. Like, so here's my thing: if you were doing a resume, are people going to look at your resume if you just have JavaScript, or are they going to look at it and say, "Oh, this dude's doing React JS and Angular JS," right? But we're not talking about a resume, though. We're talking about learning. So Actually, this my particular point is that, like, if you had to start with something from scratch, you haven't you haven't touched it day one. Are you going to? start learning the core principles of it or are you going to dig into a framework no framework. you should start learning the core principles of it first i think you pick it up along the way though i mean that's that is honestly my opinion on it i i mean a lot of people they're more comfortable when they have the confines of something like a framework and it gives them a little bit now i would argue that angular is probably not a good, good example of that because it's so deep but but a lot of times a framework gives you those guardrails to where you can so kind of start learn the good the good practices of C, or are you going to jump straight into the Unreal Engine? Straight into Unreal, engine. Unreal. <laughs> I mean, because because you want to accomplish something, right? I guess I guess that's the difference. Like people that want to learn a language, they're going to go learn that language. People that want to make something are going to say, "Hey, how can I make something the quickest way possible?" And and you know, kind I of think start it's a recipe for disaster, though. I don't know, man. I, like I said, it, it'll be interesting. I, I, I'm definitely looking forward to this particular survey results. So. The survey will decide. Yes, it will. It, like I said, it's science, so you, know, <laughs> you can't argue with science. 
So Ugh. definitely uh, also check out the show notes for that. We'll have a link for the survey up there. Definitely go up there and fill it out. We're, we're really looking forward to this one. Everybody help me prove Alan and Joe wrong. <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, also, um, t- while we're talking about kind of voting, uh, I-, I tweeted this out um, a while ago, and I thought it was kind of funny. Uh, don't want to take too much time, but uh, I was kind of thinking, you know, I, I always like uh, the idea of having like a programmer for president, you know? And so it got me kind of thinking like, well, which kind of, you know, uh, at least, um, you know, tech luminary would I, I like to be president? You know, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, you know, Linus Torvalds, uh, you know, like which kind of famous programmer, uh, Steve Wozniak, would you like to be president? They all scare me. <laughs> yeah, they're kind of known for being tyrant tyrants, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, like, I, I well, don't... if Steve Jobs was president, it would be the best looking White House you've ever seen. <laughs> but right, but you could only open the door one way <laughs> because he's not going to let you do it any other but way. But that, but coincidentally, you never realized it before. But that's the way you wanted to open the door, anyways. <laughs> so it kind of works out, right? Yeah. Now, if Bill doors. Gates is president. Bill Gates is president. Then. The White House will work with everything all right. the way back to 300 years ago. It'll still work with all of that. Right? And he's going to borrow from everything else. So you'll have the best of everything. Yeah, it'll be really heavy, though, because it's carrying a lot of baggage with it. <laughs> right? And then if Linus is president, he's going to rebuild the whole thing from the bottom up. And it's going to work more efficient than anything you've ever seen. And it'll, it'll be, be impossible amazing. to use. <laughs> and, and the whole world will adopt it. And it'll be black and white. So I got to vote Linus. <laughs> All right. I like it. <laughs> uh, all right. So I guess on to the, uh, the actual meat of the show today, and that is going to be design patterns. And so the one that I picked is the adapter pattern because I feel that it's fairly useful. So I guess first is, is just a bit of a question. You know, what is it and what does it actually try to solve? So think about it like this. If you have a laptop and your laptop has a an SD card slot on it, but you bought a camera that now has a mini SD, and then you have another device that has a micro SD. Well, you can't plug those things into it because you don't have a slot for it. So what do you do? You go out and buy an adapter so that you can plug up to your computer through a USB port or something, and then you can plug these various different cards into that adapter. Well, that's the same exact um, mentality behind programming an adapter. So... Just walking through kind of a small example, I think this will it'll help clear it up as far as software terms. And I'm borrowing some of this from uh, Tutorials Point. We'll have a link on the show on the show notes to the particular article, but I'm loosely going with it. So the one interesting thing about this that I've seen in almost every one of the implementations is there's almost like a mini factory pattern within all the adapters. And and you'll find out why in just a minute. So, and, and I don't remember one of the shows we did factory patterns. So if if you're not familiar with that, you can go back and listen to the episode, or we'll probably have another link on the show notes for that as well. But let's say that you have an audio player app, and let's say that this particular audio player has a class, and it has one method in it called play, and that play takes in a, a file type and the file name because it needs to know what it is and where to go play it, and you let's say that you now say hey you know my audio player is getting pretty popular i want to bring in some other things right now it can only play mp3s but i want to be able to play flax and mp4s as well okay well in order to do that you don't have to reinvent the wheel so you pull in some third-party libraries one that plays mp4s and one that plays flax well those are going to have their own methods or api calls 
to play files. And let's say that the MP4 ones play MP4. It's not play like yours. And then the FLAC one has a play FLAC method. Well, what you could do is you could go into your play method and you could have put a bunch of if else's in there so that every time that you add a new different type of file, you could just have if file type equal this and do this, if this, then do this. And so it really makes your core application a little bit cruddy. Like you have to go in and modify it every time. Then it's not easy to follow. It's no longer clean. So the way that you do this is you create an adapter. And so in this case, you might create something called a media adapter. And that media adapter would take in a file type. Okay. When you call play, that is then going to have a private instance of a media adapter. We'll say that media adapter could take in any type of file type. And so now you've got these FLAX and these um, MP4s. When that, MP, when that media adapter gets instantiated, it's going to go through and do that switch type thing. So it's what kind of does its own internal factory. So it's going to say if file type equal MP3, then create me a new instance of the MP3 player. If file type equal flat, create me a new instance of the flat player. If it, if it equals MP4, create me a new instance of the MP4 player. And then it's going to know, hey, you called play. You need to play or you need to hit the method on each one of those different classes that actually plays that file. And so really, in a, in, in a simplified term, all you're doing is you're creating a bridge from your existing code that your, your particular application knows that it works with, in this case, play. And now you're creating an adapter so that it can hook into multiple different classes that maybe you don't know, maybe you do, but you don't want to have to change everything to work with your existing interface. So you create these adapters that will then kind of translate what that play means on all those other classes. So essentially that's all it is. It's very similar to, to using an adapter that you plug into something to where you can put multiple different things into it through the same interface. And in a nutshell, that's, that's pretty much it. So as long as you can play, you can play. But one thing I, I think is kind of interesting about this is that you do kind of have a dumbing down effect. Like, uh, you know, MP3 supports this notion of bookmarks, but FLAX don't. So you're probably not going to have bookmarks in your, you know, interface. And so you, if you do treat everything the same, then you have to stick to those commonalities. Yeah, and I mean, I guess one thing to point out too, though, it's usually on a method-by-method basis, right? Like when you're doing an adapter, it's typically for a specific piece of functionality. So what you just said, which was really interesting, is bookmarks, right? Like several of these file formats don't support it. But what you could do if you wanted at that point, you could create your own layer for bookmarking on top of these things and then handle it yourself. And again, that's the same type of thing using an adapter that, yeah, the core FLAC library doesn't support bookmarks, but you could internally because you created this adapter and now you also set up this, this other layer of handling that behind the scenes. So yeah, absolutely true. I mean, if you if you look at it purely from if you're trying to map everything one to one, then you're going to end up having to take the lowest common denominator. But really, what the adapter pattern allows you to do is say, okay, my core you my core interface or class supports these methods, and I need these to map to methods in these other classes out here. How do I do it? You create an adapter, basically a bridge from yours to theirs. Well, I wouldn't talk about it as like one though. Right. Like, I mean, you wouldn't necessarily talk about adapter patterns as like one to one. Right. Like you would typically want, you know, you have these two things or more and you want them to all have a similar 
uh, interface to them. And that's yes. where you'd use the adapter. Yeah, yeah. It's you... not trying to make this one. Uh, I forget exactly how you worded it a moment ago, but well, no, no. When I said the the one to one, I meant you're going to map this one method over here, like play, to some method over in another class. So when I say one to one you're basically trying to get that same type functionality out of this third party or this other, this other class that you're trying to adapt to yours, right? I didn't necessarily mean you're only going to ever have one adapter. What I'm saying is you're trying to map one piece of functionality to another. And it might be that your adapter has to call multiple things in that other class in order to, to accomplish what your play is, right? Like let's well, say that let's say that now you're getting into a gray area. No, not really, because an adapter really is. You're trying to play that file. So a FLAC is a compressed, it's basically a zipped up audio file. All right. So it may be that in that adapter to do play, you've got to call this this um unzip type function first and then convert play. to MP three function. <laughs> See, I, f- I feel like you're uh, you're about to step on my toes here with my my boy facade. Okay, well, well, we won't we won't step on the toes, but but you see what I'm saying. I didn't mean one to one. I meant that you're trying to map the functionality of one to the other through a common interface. And by interface, we usually mean like the programming term interface, right? Like you're going to have a play. Uh, well, it doesn't have to be. I, I wouldn't phrase it as that. Like, doesn't like have interface to be. in this way could be much more of a generic term, not necessarily programming interface. Fair enough. But it's really cool when you think about, um, you know, the, the audio example. If you've got a file and it can do all the basic audio stuff like fast forward, play, rewind. And um, once you get it and you're going through that adapter, then you can probably do all the kind of other cool stuff, audio uh, audio stuff you want to do, like equalizers, visualizations. All that stuff's just work because it's dealing with that interface. And you yep. don't have to do a bunch of ifs all throughout that code. Yeah, that's yeah, the it, thing. And the reason why I was, I was joking about the facade pattern, though, is that it does kind of come up often about, like, you know, adapter versus facade. I think they're very similar. And, I mean, you're going to get into it here in a minute. But one's yeah. more about hiding ugliness. <laughs> and the other one's uh, more about linking two things together, right? Usually. And we won't say which is which yet. I don't know why you got to call it ugly. Uh, it's just code. Yeah, fair enough. And I, I've definitely written some ugly code in my time. So... Yeah, that's that's pretty much it in a nutshell. I mean, um, it's got a pretty simple use, and really behind the scenes, it's not that difficult to do. I've got a couple of links, one for the tutorials point, and then there was another one on Code Project that I thought did a really nice job of bringing it all into like one block of code so that you can like quickly look down and see, oh, this is what it's doing. So it's pretty pretty simple, straightforward, and useful stuff. Cool. All right, so the next thing is... Yeah, uh, if you haven't already, please go leave us a review. We've had like just a couple in the uh, in the past month since we did our last episode. So please, if you've been on the fence about it and and you know you just haven't taken the time to go up there and do it, please do it. It really does help us out. It helps us get us in front of more people and grow the audience. I mean we we want to we want to make this a big thing so everybody can learn and and have fun along the way. And if you have any friends or family that are programmers or aspiring to be programmers or just like somewhat off humor on occasion, you know, definitely send them over there and, uh, and tell them to take a listen to the show. I think what Alan's trying to say is that you should aspire to be like Luke and get the entire team listening to the show. And, you know, even better if you can get the entire team to leave a review, that'd be awesome too. Cause we yeah. greatly appreciate this. Yeah. Most excellent. This episode's being brought to you by Infragistics. 
Great apps happen by design. Build your application right from the start with rapid prototyping, UI controls, and the support you need to develop the ultimate experience. Head over to infragistics.com and start your free trial now. All right, so quick recap. Uh, we just talked about the adapter pattern, uh, which is, allows you to get two incompatible sets of code to talk together and uh, add some, uh, some really cool examples there. And uh, now we're moving on to the yeah, so, facade pattern. Yeah, so we kind of already hinted around about this one, right, and, and talked about uh, it, it maybe having some similarities with the adapter pattern. So uh, let's go over first, like, you know, the, the book definition for this thing, right? An object that provides a simplified interface to a larger body of code. So this is why, Alan, when you started to talk about your example of, you know, this thing might, uh, your adapter might be m making calls into uh, several, making several calls into that object, you know, and kind of trying to hide some of that, abstract, you know, extract some of that away from you. That's why I was like, oh, let's... That's kind of, you know, tread, tread carefully there, right? Because that's the whole point of the facade pattern is to take those complicated interfaces and to simplify them. So if in your flack example, you mentioned like an unzip, uh, you know, feature that had to happen. And Joe mentioned that it has to do a call to uh, convert to MP3 before it can play, right? Like all, all of those complicated calls, obviously we're making those up, but those might be... Um, brought into a simpler for simpler interface that's just play, right? So you just have the one method play. And and that's really the whole point, the intent of the facade pattern, right? Um, or or if you were to think about it, you could think about it this way too, is that it could provide a unified interface to a set of, uh, you know, interfaces, you know, act as a wrapper to those. And Again, in this term, and in, in the way that I'm using interface here, I'm not necessarily referring to the programming interface, uh, as in, you know, uh, I is for interface, you know, the type of interface, but maybe a more generic, uh, you know, usage of the word, right? So I have a question for you. Uh, All I'm, right. I'm trying to think of an example where I've seen something like this, and I'm thinking of, um, like, basically FTPing. Like if you were to FTP via command line, you're going to, you know, open connection, CD to directory, copy file, you know, stuff like that. But if I were to want to simplify that process, I might write a facade uh, that's kind of catered towards or, or tailored towards like copying a file somewhere. And then I might say facade.copy file. And it's still going to do all the stuff in the background. But to callers of that code, I don't have to kind of copy and paste all those lines to do, you know, similar tasks. Um, yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's one example. So like, let's say like when you would want to use this, right. Is you have some complex set of calls or maybe an API, a third party API, and you want to reduce that down to a much more simpler, um, set of calls that, that has to happen. Right. So, you know, I was trying to think back and, you know, originally when I was trying to put my notes together for the show on this, like I couldn't come up with like any concrete examples of like, I know I've done this, but God, it feels like it's been so long. Cause I could certainly remember like, you know, taking old, uh, C APIs that, you know, third party C APIs that I'd be given. And I would want to have those in, uh, you know, maybe a C plus plus kind of, uh, framework. So I, I would want to group those together logically into classes and then that way it would just be these simple easy objects that I could call and 
those objects would do all the complicated uh, you know, steps that might be necessary to happen. But then, as I was thinking about it later, I was like, well, there's definitely some examples where um, maybe if you're working with a third-party vendor for uh, like payment systems, as an example, and you want to uh, take take their APIs and reduce that down into a much simpler format that you you can call. So maybe you're not going to use every feature under the sun that that uh, you know third party offers, but the ones that you are going to use, you want to have it in a reproducible format, right? And so you might reduce that down into uh, you know one method that's you know pay and you know and you pass in an amount or something like that, right? Versus uh, the 15 calls that you have to make ahead of that in order to you know, set up the secure connection between you and, and that uh, third-party payment system and and keep that token and then tell it what you're uh, about to send and all that. Like, you know, ha- have all that hidden away in, in one simple method uh, as an example, right? Yeah, you just saying that reminds me a lot of dealing with the AWS API. You know, the first thing you do is you use a factory to create an object. You pass it your credentials. You use that object to create a request. You process the request, and you get an object back that represents the request, and you kind of check and see when that's done. And uh, a lot of times, if you're just putting a file up in, say, S3, then you might write, like, say, like a singleton class put in S3, and, you know, it just kind of does it returns true or false. Yeah, it's like a wrapper for everything, right? I mean, we've even... It definitely is a wrapper. I mean, that's a good way to consider it. I mean, we've even I I mean, we've all worked in in order systems where I, I definitely remember seeing code where it'd be like, okay, here's the order placed. All right, and then it would go and it would reduce the inventory, and then it would go and try and allocate payments. And then it would go and try and do other things, and instead of having a single wrapper that was hey, order placed that would then go do all these things, there was an API. It would literally step through and do that kind of code, right? And that's where like a facade pattern's awesome, you know. Hey, go do this, determine the taxes, do all this, and, and it does it all for you, and then it's done. And then anything that needs to leverage that same API, whether it be, um, I don't know, some other system that you have on site or off site, can call into this one simple call, as opposed to having to have this intimate knowledge about your 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 internal structure of your app. Yeah, it keeps yeah, you nice and, and dry. Yeah, and I, and I actually was thinking of specifically, uh, you know, of the PayPal API. If anybody who's done any kind of e-commerce uh, and you've worked with PayPal, you can know that that API can be really has some gross parts to it. Yeah, it's and, a beast. You know, if you can if you can take all of that complication and reduce it into one class that has just simpler, you know, easier to understand uh, entry points for the rest of your application. That's a facade, yep. right? Um, so, specifically, you know, going back to the the adapter conversation, it then brought up this interesting take about like, okay, well, let's talk about facade versus adapter, right? Like, what's what's the difference between these two? When would you use one versus the other, right? So, an adapter pattern, you would typically already have an existing interface that you're trying to get other. Uh, systems to act like, right? Whereas with a facade pattern, you don't have that. This is something brand new that you're going to create from scratch, right? That's a really good distinction. So so, uh, facade, you're defining a new pattern. And an adapter, and I think I might have said this before, or or you did, Alan, but 
you're trying to make you know two or more things look similar and and act similar to each other right so um you know whereas with the facade pattern you're not trying to necessarily make it look similar to anything you're just trying to make it easier to use right right they're both wrappers in in a sense right but the facade pattern is trying to wrap maybe multiple objects or multiple uh, system calls or API calls or, you know, multiple calls into a much more simple and easy to use call. Whereas an adapter is trying to wrap, uh, you know, each adapter is trying to wrap a single object, right? Maybe. I don't know if single object, but definitely just trying to do similar functionality, right? Well, now, there might be a flack wrapper. There might be an MP3 wrapper. Right. There might be a wave wrapper. But the point is, is that like each one of those, uh, I'm sorry, uh, I kept saying a wrapper, but I'm an adapter. So a flack adapter or, you know, an MP3 adapter. So each one of those is, a, is wrapping the specific type uh, ultimately, but they're tr- providing a common interface to it, right? Right. And, and that's the whole point of the adapter, is it's trying to solve the problem of, hey, we have these, have these multiple interfaces, whether they be objects or you know, actual type interfaces or whether they be API calls. But I have these multiple things, these multiple interfaces, and they're all distinct, but I want to make them compatible amongst them. That's what the adapter is trying to do, right? But the facade pattern is simply trying to take all of this complication and – put it into easier bite-sized chunks. Yeah, to hide it, to hide the implementation, basically. So I guess you were referring to facade as hiding the ugly earlier, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, mean, a lot of times that's what it's used for, right, is to hide the internals. It may or may not be ugly. It could be the most beautiful code in the world, but it was 20 different calls, and now you want to make it I mean, I'm sure if you've seen PayPal, it's got to be pretty. (laughs) So, (laughs) So, So then... So then I went on this this hunt because then I was curious. I was like, "Well, where is this thing you like? Like, is there an example already inside of .NET, right, where this thing is being used?" And you know, so I did some searching around, did some googling, and one comment that came back that I thought, "Oh, well, that's probably an interesting case," was uh, System.NET.WebClient, right? And going back to Joe's FTP example, right, I thought, "Oh, that's probably a pretty good example, right? Like the protocol." You know, if you think of the protocol there as the interface, then all that has been abstracted away from you now. All of that ugliness has been abstracted away from you, and instead you just have this one, you know, pretty little interface to work with, you know, called the web client. So no sockets, can, no DNS, all that stuff is, you know, out of out of your hands. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And and so then I got to thinking like, well, okay, well, I wonder if you know, maybe outside of .NET, like maybe, well, but still within .NET, but not b- baked into it, maybe something like JSON.NET would count, right? Where you're, you're um, you know, it, it kind of extracting away like that, you know, what does it take to make, to reconstitute these JavaScript objects or to go from one to the other, right? Like, you know, you just know of these simple, you know, J objects, for example, right? Right. Or, or, but then, but then I started going a little bit crazy when I was thinking about like, okay, well, where does the facade pattern madness end, right? Because if we're going back outside of .NET, right, then it was like, well, you know, we were talking about React.js earlier, and I was like, well, huh, could you count that as an a way to, uh, you know, as a facade, you know, because then you don't have to deal with the DOM, 
right? That's like, probably you know, it. Yeah, that's probably exactly what it is. It's doing things for you, right? Like it's abstracting away things for you. But then, but then I got into this question where I was like, okay, wait a minute. If the facade pattern aims to make complex systems or interface simpler, okay, by wrapping them in an easier interface, would that then make like all NuGet packages, all JavaScript frameworks, like every new package or framework that you've heard of, you know, be it for whatever language, does that then make that a facade pattern? They, because... they most certainly contain them, right? But the but by the point that I'm trying to make though is that like every framework that comes out, right? Like any um, you know, I- I- any JavaScript package, any NuGet package that you're going to use, the whole point of that thing, right, is to take something else and make it easier to use, yep. right? So the f- facade is basically a, a good example of abstraction, right? And so, you know, all these frameworks, even a function, you know, it's abstracting away what's done inside and all you see are inputs and outputs, right? So yeah, I think so, specifically so point- this pattern is talking about having a class to represent a system of actions. So I think it's a little bit smaller, you know, but I think things like frameworks and stuff like that are definitely um, very similar. You know, and you could argue that philosophically they're, you know, they're the same. Exactly. Well, yeah, they're similar in what they're trying to accomplish, except it's, I, I think even, I think Joe mentioned this previously, is when you look at a framework, it's a system of all these things put together of different patterns, right? That that com that compose the entire framework. Like so so yes, they all try to address a similar type need of either simplifying or streamlining something, but it's a collection of all these patterns and, and practices that make the entire framework. Right. So I was just throwing that out there as a thought because like everything, you know, most of what you're gonna read, like you're not gonna find anything that's gonna say like, hey, every package is a is a facade pattern right but it it definitely started to you know as you start reading into it you start like expanding like well wait a minute because you know if i take away the definition of it just being the one object or you know the one entry point and then then say well what if this uh you know json.net or react.js like you know if that counts then then that's where it was like okay wait a minute i think i think i'm i'm going too far here right like like it's Turtles all the way down. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the facade pattern. Yeah, my mind's kind of blown right now. I feel very small. <laughs> <laughs> so one of those you posters gotta, with the universe and the arrow, and you're like, you're here. You're nothing. You got to make it bigger, man. You, you got you to gotta build it up. Yeah. Uh, so we just talked about um, two of our favorite patterns. Now, I wanted to talk about uh, one uh, that I'm sort of lukewarm on. Uh, which is the memento pattern, and the reason I'm lukewarm. I've seen that movie. <laughs> yeah, it was. It's a much better movie than it is a pattern. Um, I, I actually thought that the memento pattern was something else before I started looking into it and realized what I was really thinking was more like the command pattern, which um, we'll probably mention some time in the future and go into depth. But um, the memento pattern is aimed specifically at rollbacks. So, like, a real-world example would be something like you're about to make some changes to a database and you take a full backup first, right? Because you don't know what's going to happen. If something goes, you know, sideways, you can restore that full backup. And it's very important to know that it's a full backup because you're taking a snapshot of the entire internal state of this thing 
and you're able to re- return and restore to this full internal state. And that doesn't work so well for something like, say, uh, you know, Undo in Microsoft Word, where, you know, you want to be able to kind of control Z and control Shift Z or, you know, control Y to go backwards and forwards in time because you'd be saving a full snapshot of this document at every turn. And it just doesn't work out very well. But the, the command pattern is designed specifically for that purpose. And so it's just, it's better for that. Yeah, I'm kind of curious. I don't think I've ever seen this particular pattern, so I'm curious as to what you say the implementation details of this are. Yeah, sure. So um, just to give you kind of like a, a more Cody example, um, one thing you might do is you would have uh, an object, uh, we'll say um, car, and you want a method called, got the uh, name here, save to memento. So you would say uh, car dot save to memento, and it would give you, we'll say, um, just for the purpose of demonstration, adjacent object contains all the data, like 100% of the internal structure of that uh, that object, all those internal, all those private, all those public variables. So 100%, a deep copy. Yeah, deep copy everything you need to know about that car. And what that means is I can say, hey, car, um, save to Memento. It gives me an object. I can start making some changes. I can take the tires off. And if I run into some sort of problem... I can say, oh, crap, I don't have the right kind of tires or I'm not going to be able to finish this job. Let's just go ahead and undo. And so you roll back the complete state. You roll back to that memento. So when you say you roll back, does that mean that that it's going to keep track of everything you do or do you just keep a copy of that car in another variable somewhere? Mm -hmm. Yes, you keep a copy. So like, if you were doing something more along the lines of the command pattern, you would keep track of what you do along the way, and you would know how to undo each step. And so okay. you're only saving a minimum of information for each thing you do. But the memento pattern is very dumb. It just takes like basically a dehydrated object. It takes a copy, you know, a picture of your object. And if things go south, it can restore it. So like okay. a, a good example of this, another uh, kind of real-world example is like a database transaction. You know, you say start transaction, you do some stuff, if something goes badly, you can roll back and you go back to the state before that transaction began. Well, I, I was thinking of a different example. Yeah? Yeah, like a get reset hard. Oh, there you <laughs> go. That's that's actually probably right along the lines of it. Yep. Because it's story, it has the previous state and it goes straight back to it. Except I guess the difference would be it sounds like the way that this is implemented in code is this is like a live memory type thing that's there, right? Yep. Okay. Yeah, I don't think the get reset hard is like an actual example. I was just trying to like uh, right. you're slipping you know. get back in there. We understand. <laughs> well, you know, there there's a lot of reasons to do that, but I, I was just trying to make like a I was, I was trying to make it more tangible, right? It, yep. And it makes there's another example like a tangible way to think about this thing too that I was thinking about was like system restore points. Oh yeah. Um, on your on your you know, for Windows users, right? Yep, VM snapshots are another great example. Interesting. So it's it's like you said, it's it's pretty heavy handed. Yep. It's it's not all that efficient, but it's a brute force way of just getting back to the previous state. Yep. Well, yeah, because this thing is all in memory, though, too. Like Joe said, like these are deep copies. So you know, depending on your usage of this thing, this could be some heavy uh, memory usage. Yeah, yep. it could be. And it absolutely needs to be everything that's needed to restore that object to 100% of its original state. So it's not necessarily that you need to save, you know, you don't need to necessarily um, 
serialize all of the internal data as long as it's you know derived or you kind of put those pieces back together when you restore to that memento. Hmm. So um, I think this pattern is interesting for a couple other reasons though. Um, uh, the way it works, I, I thought it was pretty interesting. Um, this is kind of the way I thought of about it. And then um, after I read about it, it was kind of um, a little bit different. And so um, there's really three objects involved. Um, and they're poorly named, so sorry. Uh, but the first <laughs> is the originator. And that's your that's your real object. That's the object that you want to be able to create a memento of. And I just said the uh, second object, the memento is actually an object that represents the state. So really, the, the JSON example I gave above wasn't so great because the JSON, you know, it's not really an object. It's like a, it's serialized. It's a little bit different. The object should it's, actually be something that's completely immutable. You almost want to think of it like a, you know, like where I thought you were going to go with this was like Inception, though, where like the the, the saved copy is a is another uh, originator object. Oh yeah, so that would be that would get into like kind of prototype uh, territory, right? Which is something we kind of talked about, where you could kind of clone things and change them a little bit, you know. And uh, that's why I think it's kind of interesting about this. So it's got really firm rules around how to do this. And basically, the originator's got originator's got two methods, and that's save to memento and restore to memento. And um, I, actually, I should say two additional methods. Because um, in a clear violation of the single responsibility pattern, um, we do want our object that actually you know does the work and does the stuff to be able to save its own internal state and restore from its own internal state, which I thought was interesting. Uh, you know, initially when I thought uh, when I was reading about this, I thought that there was going to be another class around that was in charge of knowing how to kind of serialize and deserialize these objects. But uh, that's not the case, and they specifically wanted these objects to know how to put themselves back together. Because well, yeah, I'm trying to figure out like why you think that would be a violation. Because how is it going to? How would something else know the internal state? So if it's just a da- if it's just a dumb like Poco or you know data transfer object, a DTO, then it's only really going to have public you know properties, and it doesn't even matter. You know, like there's no real reason to um, you know to do a deep copy of that because it's all right there at face value. But um, if you did do this on some sort of, you know, real class that had, uh, you know, methods for doing things, then not only is your class responsible for doing those things, it now also knows how to export and import itself. Hmm. So I guess the example I'm thinking of, like, if, I, if I'm thinking of a complicated object type, right, I'm thinking of like a data table, right, where it, it might not expose, but it, it'll know... Uh, you know, where, where, where it is in the reading process. Like it'll know, it might know, uh, you know, a total count. Well, it was supposed a total count, but, um, I guess that was the exam, the, the class though, that I was thinking of is like, there's going to be a lot of, a lot of internal state there that it's not going to necessarily expose publicly. Right. Yeah. So like, um, one example might be uh... in order to recreate, reconstitute itself. Right. So, I mean, you know, in like real simple examples, you could actually just kind of, you know, base 64, uh, you know, encode your data or literally just, you know, take the binary for that object and and write it to disk or something. But uh, another example that was kind of fun is you guys remember Mega Man? Oh, yeah. Yeah, when you would save your game, you know, they would give you a little code, which was like a grid with little pictures in it. Yep. 
Yeah, I mean that right there. That's an example of the memento pattern where they give you give you something that represents the state of the game, and you type it back in at some later date, and it's able to recreate the state of that game perfectly. That was an incredibly hard game, by the way. <laughs> it's got to play for thousands of hours. <laughs> you really did, man. You couldn't beat that game. It was impossible. You had to memorize. Oh, actually, Call of Duty was uh, speaking of gaming. One of the things that uh, we got some feedback on, like we should yeah. definitely include a. <laughs> <laughs> an episode on Call of Duty. Ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> nice. Uh, and so I uh, did want to mention the third object, uh, which is involved in this pattern. So the first was the originator. It's the real thing. Memento is the internal state. The third is called the, another terrible name, uh, the caretaker. And the caretaker is the person who's our, or the class who's actually in charge of doing that rolling back and, and doing that stuff. And what I thought was kind of interesting there is that there's pretty much no example of this, um, at least no abstract example. It's all pretty much, uh, you kind of save the memento and then you do some stuff, and if you need to, you can roll back the memento. So the well, caretaker's yeah, like, actually, not Actually, if used? you were to pull up the Wikipedia article for this pattern, it doesn't mention a caretaker. Yep. Uh, so that's a strictly by the book. You know, I I'm, I'm, wouldn't be surprised if most people just leave that out of their examples. Yeah, but uh, just for fun, I wanted to kind of think of some weird autistic. Because I was trying to think of examples that were like .dot or just well-known examples where this might exist. And um, so I kind of thought of some some weird weird scenarios that aren't quite right. But uh, you know, like one was the undo uh, and redo history. You know, that's not a great example here because we've got such a you know heavy export. You don't want to save a copy of your word, a full copy of your word document every time you you know bold something. Um, right. Also, we mentioned a little bit. Um, if instead of having that restore to memento function return void, if we actually returned an object, then you'd almost have a factory. So you'd be able to kind of like pump in this internal state and get out objects, uh, oh. which is interesting. But that does mean that that factor, or you know, what's acting as a factory has to know how to create internal states of the objects it's producing. So uh, it's a little gross. And um, what, I, what I like about thinking through that is I feel like I'm kind of learning from the masters in a way you know i'm looking at this pattern and even though i don't like it much i'm starting to understand why i think they made some of these decisions and so i thought that was pretty cool um, there's also an example of sending between different systems which is kind of interesting if you're doing some sort of you know if you can export a blob or something and send it to some other system that knows how to put it together even if you're using a shared library then that's pretty cool and uh kind of along the same lines of cloning um, C sharp, you know, it's got the cool generics, so you can do some pretty cool stuff with generics to kind of generify this. But uh, when you do that, you're kind of losing some of the benefit because you're, you know, you either have to know about the internal privates of um, these objects, or they, your, their internal state doesn't matter very much. So then, why are you really doing this? Hmm. So, and I wanted to mention also uh, why you don't really see this pattern very much, which is uh, kind of the main use case in software is transactions. And that kind of stuff is uh, usually held or uh, already uh, taken care of for you by wherever you're doing those transactions. So, and uh, command pattern is just better for most yeah, things. I'm, I'd never even heard of Memento before you said you were going to do it. Yeah. And that, right. that's yeah, why it, it kind of reminds me of um, like thinking of just another like real world use of it is if you've ever used uh, the protocol buffers, uh, Google p protocol buffers, it's like um, think of JSON 
except if it were better. <laughs> JSON <Yep>. is awesome. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Well, okay. So, you know, I say that jokingly, though. But, like, JSON is all human-readable, right? And so, by very definition, then that means that there's waste there, right? Yeah. Um, whereas protocol buffers solves the problem. It's solving a similar problem, but it's doing it in, you know, binary uh, And it would compress you know, things, form. too, wouldn't it? But what I don't remember is, oh, it's definitely a compressed version of, of what you get. Yeah, which is hard uh, to do for streaming-type stuff. So that's interesting because it doesn't know where the end is. So, but But what I don't recall, it's been a while since I've used the protocol buffers, is does it uh, save the... the state for like private you know did it have access i can't remember if you were setting up access to uh you know the things that needed to be saved in the protocol buffer i'm pretty sure that you did um yeah i don't know i have to go back and look at that but that that's one example i was thinking about i've never seen the protocol buffers before that's pretty awesome yeah that they are amazing yeah we're Uh, gonna have to leave this in the show notes they're definitely it's a definitely a much smaller uh way so like if you wanted to serialize your objects and you wanted to serialize a lot of them and you wanted to do it in as little space as possible then that's where json starts to break down right because it's such uh because it is human readable you're going to have a lot of waste there right whereas with protocol buffers um you know it's just garbage you know is what it's what it's going to look like so yeah that's that's really cool we'll definitely leave a link in the show notes for this yeah, definitely. Um, also, just to recap, um, I guess it's not really an also, uh, to recap, uh, we talked about adapters, facades, and mementos. And uh, also, I don't think we really called it out, but we've got like three other shows um, spotlighting other design patterns. So if you're just listening now, uh, go back and check those out. I know the first one is at 11, but uh, there are two more in there somewhere. Yep. And uh, we'll leave links in the show notes for those as well. And then, yeah, resources we like. Uh, <laughs> The first and foremost for probably every episode is the internet. <laughs> uh, if you haven't been there, you should check it out. <laughs> you know, we were putting the show together, the show notes together. I felt like that was relevant. <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, it's definitely one of my favorite resources. So if you haven't used it yet, um, well, A, it's interesting that you're listening. <laughs> so you can probably thank a friend for for letting you listen to the show. Yes. And uh, you should check it out. Yep. And uh, there's also the Gang of Four book, which we've mentioned many times, but that's kind of um, where a lot of this stuff comes from originally, uh, including some of the stuff that's kind of uh, outdated. And uh, I actually just threw another link in here. Uh, you guys familiar with the Codeless Code? No. Uh, I'm sure you've seen it before on like Reddit or Hacker News or whatever, but uh, it's not really um, design pattern specific, but it's um, it'll have these kind of like fake scenarios with like Buddhist um, monk temples and they'll illustrate some sort of like programming principle using some sort of like funny story about the, you know, monk cracking the egg or something. I've never seen nor heard of this. Oh, you are in for a treat then. You're welcome. Yeah. I, thanks. I probably just lost hours. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think they have some sort of rating. So definitely start with the, uh, the higher ranked ones. All right, cool. Um, so, so Joe, what's your uh, what's your tip of the week? Well, uh, I was talking about um, other editors that I won't name, 
Um, I, uh, I've finally gotten back into reinstalling some of the packages that I used to use for Sublime. I've been lazy when setting up other computers. But uh, one that I finally uh, reinstalled the other day was Code Formatter, which actually, um, pres- I guess it provides a nice facade, probably using some adapters for um, other no, plugins. You, you said facade. It's got to be a facade pattern. Yeah. <laughs> I heard you say the words. <laughs> so there's actually a bunch of different formatters. So you can go and you can get the package for JSON formatting or PHP formatting or HTML or you can get the code formatter package, which bundles all of those up. And you can just say kind of, you know, I think I did like Control-Alt-F for my hotkey. I can open up a file, do Control-Alt-F, and it's going to format my SQL for me or my XML or whatever it is. So I don't have to go use an online formatter. Oh, dude, that's beautiful. I'm downloading that. Yup. Because so I did tip. exactly what you said. I've got like three or four different formatters installed. This is excellent. Yep. Awesome. Wait, all right. so it's going to format. Wait, did you say it was specific to the language? No, or did it, formats it can them handle the many. It can handle many, is what he said. It abstracts yeah, yeah, yeah. But what I mean though is that, like, uh, did you say that it's going to format your C sharp specific to Microsoft's uh, coding standards and JavaScript to its standard? I believe so. It's up to the individual formatters that it uses to to decide that. But for me, most of the time, if I'm doing that, it's just because I want to see. You know, I got some sort of like, you know, something from like a. Uh, like a stack trace or something and I just want to like dump it in. That's probably a bad example. Or, you know, I get some sort of mangled XML and I just want to see it properly tabbed so I could read it. That's awesome. All right. So my tip of the week, simply because I couldn't think of anything else. Oh, I need to start writing these things down because they come up all throughout programming and I always forget them. So uh, mine is Slack. If you've got a team of people that you... That hey, I'm you, already slack. I'm already winning. Yeah, he is a slacker. So, no, it, seriously, if you haven't used Slack and you do any kind of communication, like a lot of us were using Google Hangouts, and while they can be awesome, there's some things that are frustrating. Like, you can't boot somebody out of a Hangout. So, if if somebody needs to be gone from your Hangout, if they don't choose to leave, then... Why are you looking then, at me? <laughs> then you can't you can't get rid of them but with slack not only is it an excellent chat platform but it's got a ton of plugins to it that make it both useful and fun for working with a group of people like you, you know you don't want to be getting on the phone all day with them you just want to shoot over a quick message uh i would definitely recommend checking it out it's it's a very nice platform there's a reason why they are growing like crazy yep slash jiffy that's why uh, Giphy, come on. <laughs> so the deal is you type in sli- slash Giphy and then some sort of phrase, and then they uh, will try to find an appropriate, they will try to find an appropriate <laughs> GIF that matches that. So you can say like slash Giphy lol, and it'll get a picture of uh, you know somebody laughing really loud, a little yeah. uh, animated GIF. Sometimes it comes up with some really interesting and odd photos or GIFs. And they're usually animated gifts. Like, there's some pretty entertaining stuff. I mean, we've definitely blown out our bandwidth. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, so it sounds it's like kind that's of more of a, a tip of the week for the company and, and instead of the individual. Yeah. Yep. It, I mean, if you don't already have a good chat platform, this is an excellent one. Yeah, we so, need to get a Coding Blocks uh, Slack going. Maybe they'll sponsor us and we can just kind of keep it running. Ooh, that would be fun. Maybe we could <laughs> even invite others. Yeah. So uh, I did write down my tip of the week. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I'll, I'll get the knife out later. Um, 
So we were talking about Atom and Code earlier, and uh, so I found this uh, the keyboard shortcut cheat sheet uh, for the two editors, and uh, so we'll throw uh, a link up to that in the show notes. But um, it's it's a pretty good list of all the different uh, you know keyboard shortcuts. It, you know, assuming that you're a keyboard junkie, which I would imagine most every developer I've met, you know, majority of them are, uh, except when it comes to Git, which is weird. Because um, Git is weird. <laughs> no, I, I, it, it is. It's like you're making okay. fun of his girlfriend, man. That's just wrong. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Why do we have to make it weird? Your girlfriend is nonsensical. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, man. She has weird flags. <laughs> <laughs> All right, before we go any further with that joke, let's just go ahead and wrap this show up and say that, in summary, we've discussed the adapter, the facade, and the memento pattern. And uh, what else you want to add to that? So uh, go to the uh, internet. Yeah, use the internet. It's good for you. Yep. <laughs> and uh, we know who uh, Outlaw is voting for for president. Yes, yes. This has been a, a very fruitful show. <laughs> all right so with that be sure to subscribe to us on itunes that you're more using your favorite podcast app and if you haven't already uh, we've said it before we'll say it again please go on to itunes or stitcher and uh, leave us a review we greatly appreciate it yep and uh, contact us with any questions or topics head over to www.cuttingblocks.net and there's a contact link up there at the top of the page and leave your name and uh, if you want to be mentioned on the show we'll be happy to do it and also visit us at www.codingblocks.net where you'll find the show notes, examples, discussions, and more. And send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net and make sure to follow us on Twitter and uh, Facebook. Yeah, Joe, I, I think he was just using Slack. Was he being Slack? Was that is that what you were talking about? He was. I think he was asleep, actually. I'm not really sure. pizza. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're just now eating? Oh, man, you got to be hungry. And that pizza's cold. No, man, this is like the, the other side of things when you're like, whoa, why did I eat that pizza? <laughs> uh, no, right. man, I'm old now, man. I think about pizza very differently. We have a very different relationship now. <laughs> uh, that's excellent. All right, guys, that's episode 30. It's a wrap. Peace.